we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Greg Mortimer. Greg is one of Australia's best known and most highly respected mountaineers. In 1984, he became one of the first two Australians to summit Everest. He later conquered K2, the world's most dangerous mountain, as well as two of the highest peaks in Antarctica. He's a pioneer of Antarctic tourism, and he even has a groundbreaking new ship named in his honour. So it's my pleasure to be talking to Greg Mortimer today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome to you, Greg. You had a wicked gleam in your eye when you said that, Chrissy. I know. <laughs> the ship thing. I love getting around to talking about how you feel about having a ship named after you. It is a great honour, of course, but it does mean that when you Google Greg Mortimer now on Google, a hundred thousand different hits come up and a lot of them are about the ship and you have to scroll through to find the ones about Greg. But anyway, we'll, t- we'll get to that ship later on because it's yeah. actually a, a really great story and... Uh, and um, also Greg's pioneering of Antarctic tourism is something um, that's really very special and a very special and important part of Greg's life. But um, to begin with, we've just touched on some of your um, uh, pioneering adventures and your mountaineering, but actually you were a founding trustee of the Australian Geographic Society. So how did that come about, Greg? Old mates with Dick Smith. Yeah. And... Howard Whelan, who was editor at the time, was also on our Everest expedition. In fact, he applied for the job to become editor from base camp at the base of Mount Everest when Dick was just starting up Australian Geographic. That's right. He so, got the call, didn't he? Yes, right. <laughs> and he left you there on the mountain to come and run. Yeah, it was probably his own mountain to climb, really, starting a magazine. He like had his this. eyes on that prize. He yes. did indeed. Look, um, it was great. You were on the uh, the board of trustees for many, many years. I know, and in fact, that's where I first met you, uh, mm. probably about twenty years ago. So, um, it's great that we're both still here and still doing the things that we do. Uh, but let's go back to um, Everest and your achievement on Everest the first Australians to summit Everest back in 1984. It was not uh, the kind of Everest summiting expedition that we hear a lot about. It was much more low-key than that, wasn't it? It was a small team. It was a different time of the year. You didn't really have a lot of gear. It's a different type of mountaineering from some of the bigger kind of expeditions that we hear about. Tell me about the difference between your expedition and, say, Hillary's expedition back in the 1950s. Uh, I think you could say that our 84 expedition was more akin to the Hillary era of mountaineering than it is to the modern day in some respects. Mm -hmm. Um, Insofar as 
even by then in the 80s, we knew, knew less about Everest, its vagaries, the weather, and there were still entire um, f huge swathes of it had, that had never been climbed before. And so there was a very great mystery about it, which is somewhat different today. Uh, we know more about the weather and, uh, and as we know, many, many people climb Everest every year. So we were on a different planet at that stage. <laughs> and it was really a pioneering um, ascent, wasn't it? Because you were the first people to access the summit by that route. By the, by the great couloir on the, on the north face. Yes, and that is a large me measure uh, due to our own naivety and uh, the lack of money that we had. Right. <laughs> very, two very powerful forces. <laughs> yes. So we didn't know what we were doing mm. and we didn't have enough money to do mm. it, mm. but did okay. Well, it sounds like a true <laughs> adventure, doesn't it, in that case? Yeah, we made it up as we went along you, somewhat. Yeah, you were a true explorers <laughs> and ahead of your time and pioneering, all those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, no oxygen. Tell us about that. Um, I think these days that doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, it's still, it doesn't happen very much, no. Mm. Um, and harkening back to, to Ed Hillary, of course, and, and Tenzing Norgay, they climbed with Everest with oxygen. Mm. But in, then in the early 80s, uh, two renowned mountaineers, uh, Habler and Mesner, climbed Everest without oxygen. That was an extraordinary breakthrough, a phenomenal Olympic standard breakthrough mm. because we didn't know at that stage whether people could survive on the top of Everest without oxygen, whether they'd blow their brains out, basically, from lack of air. Uh, Mesner and Habler proved that, that it was possible. When we were there, we still didn't know if they were physical freaks or not mm. and what the impact on our bodies and lives would be. Uh, so that underpinned our approach and our feeling um, and our understanding of Everest at the time. Uh, so a different era, almost. Mm. Um, and it was a, um, a constant daily spectre on our expedition. So for the best part of six weeks ensconced on Everest, we really never knew how far we could get and which way we should go. And, and literally a daily um, expose. And, and a daily um, opening of what our own bodies were capable of doing and, and, and how they would survive. Yeah. And they do that in uh, uh, the different effects on different members of the team, I guess. It and, does. And you can't really always kind of work out who's going to be affected. How it's going to be. Mm. Uh, it's, it's fickle. Mm. And the slightest of malady, like a cold, can you can put you out of out of the game and and that happened to all of us at various stages throughout the expedition but you'd have to say that a hallmark of that that entire thing that entire expedition was that we had a lot of fun <laughs> we had a good time yeah. it was they were angst-ridden things climbing big mountains because it's dangerous hmm. and, and you don't know where you're going necessarily but we had a lot of fun, yes. and and that's the, that's really the underpinning of the success of the expedition.
And you were a team of four or five young men, weren't you, in your yes. sort of 20s or yeah, whatever, or early right. 30s or something, going off. And we didn't have Sherpas things. carrying gear. We had mm. Sherpa mates who were down at base camp. and mm. uh, So we did all that ourselves. We didn't want to have um, a team of Sherpas carrying stuff for us. We figured if we were going there on our own volition that we should do the work ourselves. And... Um, and it was, yeah, it, it had its moments. It had, we had big avalanches and, and we had a, a catastrophic loss of a lot of our equipment out in a big avalanche in the middle of the expedition. Mm -hmm. The end product of which was that Tim ultimately went to the top of Everest in his cross-country ski boots. That's right, Tim McCartney Snape. He lost his boots, didn't he? Yeah, they were lost in an avalanche. We never yeah. we dug for days but never found them again. Yeah. And he decided to go on with his cross-country boots. And yeah. That's a testament to his strength. It is. Yeah. What an amazing character. Well, you were all amazing characters and you did have this great camaraderie uh, between you. But actually, in the end, only two of you made it to the top and that was yourself and Tim. Yeah. Um, so those decisions, they must be very tough for people to decide to turn around and come back down, but they're very important, aren't they? Yes, but, they are, but they're somewhat self-fulfilling. Um, and again, it's the vagaries of the conditions and individual body responses on the day. There's a good measure of good luck involved, serendipity, if you like. Mm -hmm. And on our appointed summit day, uh, there were four of us in our summit tent. Uh, Tim... Andy, Lincoln and myself. Jeff, Jeff Bartram had stopped a few days earlier because he started to get altitude sickness. On our appointed summit day, Lincoln was really suffering from bad lung problem and had to pull out. So Tim and Andy and I went on that last day towards the summit. And about 80 metres shy of the summit, Andy had to stop and turn away and go back down again. So, yes, you say it was Tim and I on the summit, but to, to us as a group, it, we're all... It was, the team. It was all of us. It was a team and, yeah. effort and a team achievement. It perhaps sounds a little corny, but it is very yeah. true. And, of course, Lincoln that you have mentioned is Lincoln Hall. Yes. He eventually did. A few years later. Somewhat later, he, he, he went back and climbed it. The late Lincoln Hall, very much missed yep, mountain indeed. climber. Um, yeah, and so tell us about... Uh, by the time you did get to the top, uh, it was night. Night was falling, wasn't it? It was getting dark. Yeah. How do you remember? I mean, do you, did you think about it at the time? It was just like, I'm there, I've made it, but now the real work starts because I've got to get down. Or were you able to savor that moment and really enjoy it? I can close my eyes now and see the view. Wow. And that's that's with me forever. Yeah. Uh, and the day leading up to that moment of stepping on the summit is something of a blur because we were just in 150% focus of putting the next step in the right place. Because we'd also decided earlier on in the expedition on those last days that we wouldn't take any rope. So we were just climbing unroped. Right. Um, so as to go f as fast as possible. Um, and speed is safety in those circumstances. That translates into laser-like focus needed to put the next step correctly so that you get it right. And, and you can do, without oxygen, 
a half a dozen steps before you run into oxygen debt and you have to stop and rest. And all I remember is that grinding six or seven steps throughout the day to a point where there was no more up, basically. Mm. And, and is it clear then when you're on the top? Do you know? There's no markers there or anything, is there? You just... well, no, for us, in our case, there was no one yeah. and no markers, no sign of humanity. Yeah. Um, which is a, is a great treat, of course. Uh, and, yes, it's very obvious, not very big. It's a couple of tabletops right. in size. Uh, so it's very distinct. And the blessed thing is you don't have to keep going up anymore. Mm. <laughs> and did you hang about? Or is it 20 like... minutes. Oh, OK. And did you speak to each other? Did you say things? Yeah, I, yes. We, we mumbled. Yeah. But it's an interesting question because it is a curious thing about well-functioning expeditions in any part of extreme in the world, I think. Those who are on an expedition who know each other well can often go for large periods of time without talking to each other, mm. but understanding the actions of your companions. And it's a delightful state. Mm. Uh, you might speak in grunts occasionally, but you understand the actions and reactions of your companions, mm. which mm. is marvellous, really. Mm. Um, and, and then you turn around and go down again. Yeah. And that can often that's be when it. the trouble starts. And with, that's the problem, it's, yeah. it's as dangerous coming down. Uh, if not more so, mm. there's, there's gravity yeah. you're fighting against, there's tiredness, there's the psychological impact of having got to your goal and just going home, you know, turning around the corner to go home. And that's really traditionally where so many people come unstuck, unfortunately. Mm. You can very... It's very hard to keep focus, keep and have kept some charge in the batteries to get back down. And it wasn't all smooth sailing, was it, for you coming back down? We came down in the dark, mm. yeah, because we'd been a bit slow getting up, mm. finding our way on, through the um, summit slopes. And, uh, yes, it was, it was a long, long cold um, otherworldly night, mm. which put us back into our last little haven of a tent at about 8,200, 300 metres, where Lincoln was waiting mm. uh, and arrived there in the early hours of the morning uh, of the following day. Mm. <laughs> and then did you get a chance to really sort of think about, you know, we're... We're out of the, we're, um, out of the danger zone, not, or not really? Not, not yet. really. Then no, no, no. I guess at that stage, the professional side of a climber kicks in. If you like, someone who's climbed a lot knows to maintain the attentions, keep the focus until you're safely at the bottom. Mm. And that, for in my case, was difficult because I was physically beyond what I was capable of at that stage. My battery had got empty mm. and, and was really doing it tough mm. coming down mm. um, and and really was shepherded down by Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really not until you get to the bottom that the the joy kicks yeah. in. You can allow yourself yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let yourself go. Yeah. You all came back to Sydney and you were hailed as heroes when it was a great um, uh, Australian achievement. But take us back to where it all began um, because 
you know, you're an Australian in a country really where the highest mountain in Australia can be reached sort of in a pair of trainers. And uh, we don't really have any of those peaks. And when you think about people like Reinhold Messner, I know that you uh, mentioned earlier that, that often the world's great climbers come or, you know, hail from places like the Alps mm -hmm. or, or whatever, where there are big mountains to climb all around. How does someone in a country like Australia become one of the world's great climbers? What Tell us about your journey and how you first began climbing rock faces or mountains. Oh, OK. But I would say, harken back to the naivete, the, the, uh, the quotient of naivety that mm -hmm. goes with Australian mountaineers going to the highest mountains, um, there, that, that was very much... Uh, that was an important part yeah. of our <laughs> flattest continent on the planet, apart from Antarctica, going off to the highest mountains. Mm. Bunch of blokes. Mm. Um, but all of us had climbed a great deal since our childhood, since our teens, early teens. All of us had climbed um, on those beautiful rock climbing and wild places that Australia has. And, the, you know, some of the great rock climbing in the world we have on our doorsteps. And that's because we've got cliffs, is that? Is yes. That yeah, there's all those beautiful sandstone cliffs that we know yeah. in the Blue Mountains, for example, the escarpments of the Blue Mountains, mm. and the gorges are throughout the country, mm. and they turn out to be some of the best available. And so we'd cut our teeth on that. And then not far away, of course, is the Southern Alps of New Zealand. So mm. also all of us had done our apprenticeship in, in New Zealand, and they're difficult conditions, uh, demanding conditions. And, and New Zealand, not just the Ed Hillary's, but, but many, many more very great mountaineers have come out of New Zealand because they've done their apprenticeship in a, in a difficult environment. Mm. Um, and then all, all of us on the Everest expedition had a number of years of climbing in other big mountains of the world. Um, so... To, to hone in that a bit more detail, I, I was one of those kids who started rock climbing in the Boy Scouts. Right. And and that I liked it so much. Gave Scouts away and just went rock climbing um, obsessively like young people can. And you're, you're, you hail from Sydney originally, from mm. near Bondi, but you were yes. climbing out in the Blue Mountains, as you mentioned. Yes. Beautiful cliff lines that they have there. Now, the Blue Mountains is your home these days. Yes, it is. I live on the western side of the Blue Mountains Yeah. in the Hartley Valley system, which is beautiful, a little yeah. piece of heaven. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just the cliffs. There's all those, those all the gorgeous canyons that the Blue Mountains have and, and all the amazing bushworks, bushwalks in vast areas that um, are a pretty good place to cut your teeth into going into the wild. Hmm. So in that regard, we're not blessed with the highest mountains, but with wild country. So as this uh, little lad that was starting to, that was in the Boy Scouts, you can see you now with your yeah, uniform on or whatever, yeah. you had, you, you weren't the healthiest small boy. You actually had a, a kind of a lung condition when you were small. Did it sort of hold you back or did it make you more determined to sort of get out and, and overcome a, a, a sort of a challenge like that, a personal challenge? Right. Uh, yes, I had a uh, thing called bronchiectasis as a child, which uh, my parents shepherded me through from the age of 10 to 14 or so, um, which meant going and having my lungs washed out um, every week and then a bit longer every month. And the curious 
result of that was developing a pair of strong lungs, I guess. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, which from a very, very early age had been uh, falsely drowned every week and then uh, got strong. Right. Okay. That's uh, interesting, isn't it? That uh, and and did you outgrow? Is that what happened at fourteen? Is it's one of those things that you outgrew? Or? Uh, no, they, it, I was well treated. Right. Yeah. And uh, and then by fourteen, you were already starting to climb. Yeah. These peaks were calling to you, as it might you might think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Soon. Uh, yes. As soon as I tried rock climbing, I knew I I liked it a lot. Hmm. I like the combination of um, the the anarchy of it, the um, the combination of physical effort and and use of mind. It's kind of like playing chess uh, in the vertical, if you like. That's fascinating, endlessly fascinating, and also that it's not. Competing against other people, not I'm not really have never been drawn to competing with other people. It's just competing with yourself, if you like, or testing yourself. Or I can also say that I was graced by liberal parents who let me go. So my mum and dad would let me catch a train up to the Blue Mountains for the weekend when I was 14, stay in a cave on the top of a cliff and come back on Sunday night. Mm. Doesn't happen so now, much these days. That's so. pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think it did happen a bit more. P- parents were off doing their own thing, really, weren't they? And they just uh, they didn't worry as much about their children. They worried about them, but I guess they just, I suppose we call it helicopter parenting or whatever you want to call it these days. I think children seemed to have more freedom back then. Uh, and there were no mobile phones, so your parents couldn't, you know, once, once you went out the front door and... Saturday morning, they didn't really see you till the evening and they didn't really worry about it so much. They probably worried. When I think back now with my own children, I know that you worry about them, but they let me go. Mm. That's a great gift. Yeah. That's a great gift of love from my mum and dad, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And to what extent was the beauty of the landscapes that you were um, exploring, was that, is that also part of it for you, including with the mountaineering? It's uh, fundamental to it. The... Uh, the joy that comes from the great wild places anywhere in the world uh, is a treasure to tap into. And it's endless as well, the beauty that comes in wild places. I can, ha- I might also say that I think as our world becomes, and I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> we love see, a tangent on that, talking Australia. <laughs> given given uh, that we are in an increasingly virtual world of electrons and ones and noughts, I think that's the reason why wild places are more and more important to us because of the uh, discoveries that come from simple human steps into wilderness. And, yeah. and what you can learn from that about your primal self and how the great systems at work and how how uh, small we are as individuals in the in the great powerful forces of the world. You you studied to be a geologist. Did that come as a result of your love of the rocks and the mountains, or was it uh, the other way around, or, or how did that come about? 
I think it was the other way around. I was, had, was already enamoured with going into the bush as a child before going to senior school and university. But that opened my eyes to sciences and geology and how the world worked. Um, and it's, you know, there's so many spectacular examples of raw geology in throughout Australia. You know, we see the bare bones of the earth and we the do. big Geolog folds on the ground. We can sort of trace that ancient, ancient history in so many different marvelous. ways, in so many yeah, different marvelous. places. Yeah. yeah, we're very blessed. Mm. And you're, so you studied geology and that led you to work with the New Zealand Antarctic Division, is that right? Yeah. yeah and did. was that, were you working in New Zealand then? Or? No, I went to New Zealand, I migrated to New Zealand, in fact, right. to take a job with the government, with the New Zealand Antarctic Division, because... They uh, very wisely, I thought, employed people who were geologists, mountaineers. And that was like candy to a baby for me, uh, to be able to go to Antarctica uh, with both hats on as a climber and as a geologist and be let free to go and map and explore in the Dry Valleys, for example, or the Royal Society Range in the Ross Sea. Was, was, that was heaven sent for me. And that was, were you sailing down to Antarctica from New Zealand, from Christchurch? Those, those, those times of flying. Yeah. So flying from Christchurch into Scott Base. Right. It was McMurdo Base. Yeah. Working out of Scott Base, which Ed Hillary had established, and uh, spending months at a time out in, in deep field looking at geological problems which were still unsolved at that stage. The basic mapping had not been done and uh, the structure and the connections of uh, Antarctica to Australia geologically were not fully understood. And you, as a result of being down there, in, in, uh, would you spend a winter down there? or I, I never spent a winter there. Uh, there were uh, I spent long periods, up to eight months there, mm -hmm. over a five-year period, Yeah, but never a winter. So you saw the mountains and you had a couple of those big peaks in your sights as a mountaineer as well. Tell us about your mountain climbing and you had a couple of firsts down there too. Part of one of those seasons in Antarctica was working on a joint New Zealand-Australian-West German program called Ganovex where we were mapping uh, the Gondwana connections between Antarctica and New Zealand and Australia in northern Victoria land. So it's the area straight below New Zealand in Antarctica mm -hmm. on the Ross Sea edge. And there in the middle of that is a series of high mountains, the highest of which had never been climbed, called Mount Minto. And so I was introduced to Mount Minto and learnt... And it's a spectacular-looking big lump of a thing surrounded by other beautiful mountains. I learnt then that... It had been attempted a number of times, but never successfully climbed. So I had that one tucked away mm -hmm. for future reference. And the end product of that was in a, um, the Australian bicentennial year, having an expedition to sail to Antarctica and try and climb Mount Minto. In a, in a small boat, hey? Was in it? the old Dixmith Explorer. That's right, actually. and I think that was also an Australian Geographic Society supported Yes, it expedition. was, very importantly. 
yeah. very important. So not only were you mountain climbing and not only were you dealing with the Antarctic ice and that, that, that very inhospitable environment, you were also sailing a small boat through the Southern Oceans. Yes. Now, there's a story to that. Um, <laughs> we had planned the expedition to charter an icebreaker. That was the initial plan, um, which, of course, would cost several million dollars. So the reality of the financials of it was that we ended up with a uh, a 25-metre yacht, the old wonderful old Dick Smith Explorer. And that very much defined uh, an outrageous and ridiculous three-month expedition across the Southern Ocean and into the, into the mountains. Wow. I bet there were some interesting moments trying to get that yacht down there through those winds and those circumpolar currents how how who was captain who was actually handling the yacht yes uh okay so there was 11 people on the expedition there was um a mixture of climbers and the the yacht crew the captain of which was don richards uh who unfortunately died uh a year ago right a wonderful man who had been with david lewis yeah we know david lewis um to Antarctica in years gone by, mm -hmm. uh, on the old uh, Dick Smith Explorer, actually, amongst other things. And at that stage, Don was in his early 60s, way over the hill <laughs> <laughs> on first pass. Now, significantly younger, younger than I am yeah. now, <laughs> looking back over the shoulder. Put it, yes, it does. Put it in perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and then the other key figure was Colin Putt, ah, of yes. course, who's another very important, um, incredible man, um, explorer of great importance to Australia, but little known, really, mm. as a shy uh, man of great intellect. Colin. So it was a, col a very colourful band of people. Yeah. And... If we knew what would befall us on that expedition before we left home, we would never have left port. <laughs> it was the hallmark of that expedition was the number of ridiculous things that went wrong, um, somewhat because of our own stupidity and somewhat because of the vigours of the place. Mm. Yeah. But you did make it up We did to make it. Mount Minto. We did climb Mount Minto. It's so the yeah. first ascent thereof. Yeah. Um, and got home safely somewhat battered, weary and more worldly wise. Yeah, but it didn't, about... didn't stop you going back, Greg. You went back again to, to, to climb another peak. Uh, yes, not long after that I went to Vincent Massif, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica. It's in the middle of Antarctica and several hundred miles from the North Pole, uh, South Pole. And uh, that was with... Two other guys, Colin Monteith, very uh, Australian-born, very famous New Zealand mountaineer and photographer, mm -hmm. and a guy called Mike McDowell, who is well known to Australian Geographic. Yes, he is. Scurrilous character, who <laughs> at the time was starting a travel company to take people on cruises to Antarctica. Right. And that was my introduction to that world. Mm-hmm. And, and opened the door of a whole new unexpected world. 
Now we're in sort of around the early 90s, aren't we, talking yes. about here? Yes, yeah. And so your next sort of big step in your life was in fact doing that yourself and was the, the beginnings of, uh, I think we would definitely refer to you as a pioneer of Antarctic tourism in Australia. Um, so tell me how did this mountain climbing geologist end up in the travel business um, taking people, obviously you'd been down there on this little ship, but you could see that there was a lot of interest in, in that part of the world. And I guess maybe driven by the idea that you could get people, ordinary people down there, uh, you, you set up a, a travel business to, the, to Antarctica. Tell us all about that. Yes, there's, an, there's an, a lot of steps involved in that process, but the Minto expedition was the first of those steps insofar as we we uh, rented the, the old Dick Smith Explorer from the Oceanic Research Foundation, which David Lewis had established, and that was my entree to that world of renting ships, mm -hmm. chartering ships, mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. And that as a private expedition rather than a government-funded thing, it opened my eyes to the potential of private involvement in Antarctica. And then going to Vincent Massif with Mike McDowell was the next step in opening the doors because that was about the time that the Soviet Union was collapsing. May seemed mm -hmm. like a left-field yep. um, entree, but... When the Soviet Union collapsed, all of their beautiful ice-strengthened ships had no business and they started looking towards Antarctica at the potential to, to find charter business. And Mike McDowell procured the use of one of those little Russian ships and asked me, after we'd been to Vincent Massif, to be the leader of his expeditions on those one of those little that little ship. And so that was... My introduction to the commercial side of Antarctica and Antarctic tourism, and that was pretty wild, you know. And Colin Monteith was there again. He and I were uh, on this little old Russian ship, taking groups of people who are obviously very adventurous mm. to South Georgia and the Antarctic Peninsula and the South Sandwich Islands. And none of us knew what we were doing. We were all making it up as we went along, and it was magnificent. And you, you sailed out of South America then? Sailing out of South America in that case, mm. yeah, and in the, the end of 1990. Right, yeah. and so tell me when you, I mean, if you go down to those places now, Ushuaia and the, the sort of jumping, stopping off points for Antarctica, there's some pretty big ships there, pretty luxurious ships going down to Antarctica. What was it like in the 90s there for? Was there, were there many tourist ships going down at that stage? There were three Three others, two, two others actually, the Lindblad um, yeah. and and the World Discoverer, mm -hmm. and uh, Ushuaia, the town of Ushuaia in Tierra del Fuego at the bottom of South America was uh, a cowboy town, mm. little fishing village almost at mm. that stage. Mm. So it was quite maverick, the whole thing, mm. and and with that, very exciting. So even for those travellers to get there was a bit of an adventure already getting there. Yes, yeah, right? so they were they were adventurous people yeah. who were drawn to that. Yeah. By definition. And how did you know those people were there? Were there people that that you knew, or just that you that you you knew there was a market there for people to to go down there it, in, on these types of ships? In the first instance, it was Mike's Mike McDowell's um, friends' extended mm. group of. 
people and a little marketing that he did yeah. at the time. Um, so not quite a haphazard, but, um, you know, a burgeoning new business. Yeah. And you, so these Russian ships, tell us about them. They're um, a, a story in themselves, really, aren't they? They're they are. A bit of utilitarian, I guess. Yeah, they were... Um, how can I best explain it? Look, we always had one of the crew members who was a KGB agent at the time. Right. <laughs> so he kept an eye over on things. Yeah. That kind of sets the scene, if mm, you like. Mm. And <laughs> Wonderful. He, he would have the keys to the various cabins and was in control of the keys. Yeah. Uh, a bit different from today. Mm. And, yes, they were beautiful Beautifully built, but pretty rough old ships mm. in a way. Not, not the creature comforts that we see in the sophisticated Antarctic vessels of today, mm. but the real deal. Yeah, um, a real adventure. So you uh, were providing exciting. a real polar adventure for just ordinary people. Yes. Now, no... I went into that not knowing what to expect of it and boots and all, and it seemed like an exciting prospect and... I saw, you know, what I saw was the impact of those places on people because they're so otherworldly and so wild and untrammeled and and you've got nothing really to compare to what it's like being in the polar regions Hmm. or in any of the great wildernesses of the world but particularly the polar regions. Deep, meaningful impact on people. Changed their view of the world. And I liked that. Mm. I really liked it. Mm. I liked the feeding off the energy that came from people's responses as their eyes were opened to, you know, the beauty of wild places. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a very heady cocktail. Yeah. And, uh, and very gratifying, you know, to have an impact on people's thinking in that way just by showing them beautiful places. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and places that they they know that they're, Really on the frontier down there. Yes, but, yes, uh, indeed. They're sort of treading in the footsteps of Shackleton, I suppose, and Mawson and people like yeah, that. Yeah, not not really there. not far beyond the the great age of scientific exploration. Of course, mm. the, the golden age of exploration in the early 20th century, then the scientific age mm. soon after the Second World War, and then tourism came the along. Tourism, yeah. yeah. We'll be back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer after a quick break. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. We're back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer. So your company was Aurora Expeditions. Mm. I have to say I'm very privileged to have been down to the Antarctic mm. um, on one of your uh, Russian, on one of the Russian All ships the and also to the Arctic as well. Mm. And I felt exactly the same, as you say. I mean, it really opened. I mean, I, 
I take photographs as well. So I mean, it's an absolute photographer's paradise to be able to go to those places. And you feel very privileged when you're there, but you do feel like you're on a real adventure and uh, you were doing something that most people never get to go. So it did have that sense of aura of privilege about it. Um, and um, apart from being great fun, but the people, it was a, attracts a certain type of people. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Now that demographic has changed or widened in the intervening years. There's Now it's a very significant industry, worldwide Antarctic, polar tourism. Mm. And there are many, many vessels um, visiting Antarctica every summer. All shapes and sizes. Not too many little ships left. The average size of ships has got greater. And, and some of them uh, don't have their people landing on Antarctica. They go and look from the ship and move on. Mm. Uh, so there's a wider range of, of styles of trips going on. But still, given that Antarctica's 1.7 times the size of Australia, there's a lot of room to move. And it's, it's very exciting still. And... I've been in Antarctica pretty well every summer since 1990. Wow. And, you know, three to five, six times every summer. And still, I every single voyage, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, really, because the ice and the weather control the dynamic the environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's marvellous. Yeah. So those old kind of utilitarian Russian ships have more or less been phased out now. Mm, there's only and, one of them left. Yeah. Um, and people are going down in much greater comfort. And I guess that's what you're saying. That's broadening out the demographic of mm. who's able to go down there. Do you think there's any chance that uh, it will go the way of many of the other tourist hotspots in the world and be loved to death in, in that way? What, what do you think are the challenges now for the Antarctic region? I think... You could say that it, right now we're at a point where we're not... The level of tourism isn't having an undue environmental impact. We're getting to a point of there being management problems, of there being enough ships that their movement needs to be managed so as to maintain the wilderness values of the place, so that you don't see other ships mm. and don't get queued up yeah. at... The, the best landing places, there's a management issue to be attended to. It looks like in the next five to ten years we're going to see a very significant growth in the number of ships. So we're about to enter a new phase. Luckily enough, and this is very particular, this is absolutely particular to Antarctica. Obviously, uh, there's no indigenous population there. So luckily, the early Antarctic tourism companies were adventurous-minded outdoors people who was, they established a set of rules about behaviour in Antarctica for tourists. Mm. So the rules came before the people. Now, that's the only continent that that's ever happened. So we've got a good base in order to manage Antarctic tourism. Very great care is going to be needed in the next five to ten years, but we've got a fantastic platform in order to do that. And also, uh, there's an extraordinary level of cooperation between 
companies, between industry competitors, in that they um, go, um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, they collaborate because of interest in looking after the place. Mm. And, and that's probably not, maybe not unique in, in world tourism, but it's certainly special. So we do have that opportunity, really, to take sort of the learnings, I suppose, of, of mass tourism from the past and apply it to this very sort of, I suppose, pristine part of the world and actually protect it uh, going forward and, and just make sure it's properly managed because of the input from people like yourselves who've been going there for many, many years. Yes, I think there's good cause to be optimistic. Yeah. Care is required, but mm. we can be optimistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to, leads me into the ship that is named after you. That is one of the new... Uh, generation of ships going down there, the mm -hmm. Greg Mortimer. How did you feel when you found out that they were going to name a ship? I can't you? tell you how weird that is. <laughs> I cannot begin to explain to you how very weird that is. Yes. It's a beautiful ship. Yeah. It's really clever. It's mm. strong. It's gorgeous, posh. Mm. Nice to be on. Yeah. Rides like a dream. Mm -hmm. Radical design with a bow that's like a submarine. So it's a wave piercing bow essentially, which makes very smooth. And that's, that's a game changer. This is a new class of vessel, that's the first of its type in the world, and it's a game changer for, for shipping. And you've been on it, you've been down there. Yeah, I was it? on the maiden voyages and yeah. so on. And, and that's only just recently the, happened, hasn't that it? That was a few months ago. Yeah. And yeah, so we, we tested it out, we tried it out, nice, superb. Yeah. But walking around this magnificent ship where your name is everywhere on the walls is. <laughs> Weird beyond conception. And I, th I know for someone as humble as you are, Greg, that must be a, a, a kind of a daunting experience. But I, I hope that you get used to that. I mean, I have seen photographs of the ship. It is a very beautiful vessel. And, uh, you know, it's a great way. I think it's great to think that um, Antarctic tourism is, is in good hands in the operators that are mm. going down mm. there. And that these ships will bring a whole new kind of generation of people to an appreciation of that part of the world. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an important point, I think, Chrissy, because I think, in a sense, the more people that we can expose to the the power of big wilderness, the, the, the better off we are. Mm. There's management required, yeah. caution required, but the more people that see it and feel it, then the more real we are. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, look, Greg, you're a great advocate for that, for getting out of your comfort zone uh, and going exploring these amazing places in the world and, and responsible risk-taking and all those things that we completely concur on here at Australian Geographic. So it's been a great pleasure to have you here on Talking Australia today. And, um, yeah, we thank you for coming in and making time to talk to our listeners. Yeah, we've talked a lot. It's a great honour. <laughs> thank you, Greg. Right, see ya. Okay. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Greg Mortimer. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.